You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Dr. Bill Smith, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called Meeting Jesus. We all probably Jesus. should be going wherever they're going right now. <laughs> well, I thought I had something to say today until I saw Maddie's video. So that's all I've got. Unless there are questions. <laughs> wow, I did not know that video was going to be shown today. And I'm talking on uh, the widows. What a coincidence, isn't it? What a coincidence. When uh, Justin announced to the teaching team that we'd be talking about uh, people that met Jesus uh, and, and to send in who we might like to talk about, it took me almost three seconds to respond. I may have been the first one to respond. There's, there's something about these widows that has attracted me over the years, and so I thought here's a chance to tell other people some of the things that, that I've, I've noticed or seen about what's going on there with these, with these widows. So uh, let's have a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, as we do all the time, acknowledging that you are the teacher, that you are our counselor, our provider, our defender, our protector. You are the one who's most holy, and that's why we've been singing to you to offer you praise because we know that you inhabit the praise of your people, so we know that you're here now. I offer myself simply as a conduit for you, a vessel that is broken, but you have mended. And so we thank you for this time, and we look forward with the anticipation of what you would have to share with us, that we'd be forever changed because we were here today with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. So, I'm going to talk about one of the three widows today, and then next week, part two, I'll talk about two other widows. But today, I want, to, I want to focus on Anna, the prophetess. And of course, to start uh, to talk about her, we really should go back to Leviticus 25, because I knew Julie would be here, and she's all about context. <laughs> and, and by the way, I, you all probably heard that Julie won some little contest, right, somewhere about some book of the year. So let's give her a hand. Congratulations. That's the good news. The bad news is you got the book of the year, so now they're expecting you to keep that up, right? <laughs> so let's look back here at Leviticus 25, where God teaches about and commands about something called the land Sabbath, something we don't talk about much. We talk about the Sabbath, but there was also a land Sabbath. And it says in Leviticus 25, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I am going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. So during the seventh year, there's no tilling of the soil. Anything that grew naturally, they could obviously eat from, but they weren't supposed to to, to interact with the land in any way in terms of cultivation or agriculture. It was supposed to rest. And this is the beginning of God introducing his economy which would be then after another seven, seven years, you do that again through seven cycles of that, which would be a total of 49 years. And then the 50th year, there would be another Sabbath. So here's a pop quiz. And that year would be called the year of Jubilee. So uh, this is what they were supposed to do. Emphasize supposed to do. So then in 966, the Lord moves Solomon to build a temple 
And in this verse here, we see uh, the Lord saying, The word of the Lord came to Solomon, as for this temple that you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. So you may remember a couple sermons ago, I talked about God negotiates with his people. And he always uses the same exact technique. I teach a course on negotiation. I teach 65 techniques. But at one point I say, but there's one technique that stands above all the rest, and it's quid pro quo. If then, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. And I notice as I study scripture, whenever I look at it from a negotiation standpoint, that's how God always negotiates with people. He always does quid pro quo. If you do this, then I will do this. And so we see it again here. He says, if... You obey all my laws, keep all my decrees, then what I will do, what you get in return for obeying all those things, is you get me. I will be with you and live amongst you. However, you can probably guess what happened next, is they didn't do their part of the deal. And so now we see in 586 B.C., on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He wiped the whole place out. Now, before he set fire to all these things, he also took everything of value out of the temple. So there was lots of silver, lots of gold and bronze. All that stuff and artifacts were taken out of the temple, and they were taken to Babylon. And we still don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is to this day. It's still missing. Somebody... Probably Scott knows, if anybody knows, right? <laughs> and so we see that God has kept his part of the deal as well, because you didn't obey, and so the temple is destroyed. And so then what happens next is Judah is sent into captivity away from her land, not even on the land anymore. They're taken away. And as a result, then, we see lamentations starts to talk about this sadness, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. There were a few people left in Israel to do some minor tending of things, sort of like the janitors, but otherwise the city was wiped out. And Lamentations go on to say, how like a widow is she? So as we move forward in time, then we see in Second Chronicles 36, he's supposed to be talking about widows, but he's talking all this history about temples and stuff. Stay with me for a second, because in Second Chronicles 36, we see that King Cyrus of Persia is moved by the Lord. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing which, by the way, is another negotiation technique, right? I want this in writing <laughs> because it creates something called accountability power. It's in writing you're accountable to it. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. And so now the temple is starting to be rebuilt. <clears throat> the first temple was destroyed In 586 B.C., the second temple was completed. Uh, Cyrus didn't actually complete it. He started it. But it was completed in 516 B.C. So if you subtract one from the other, you get about 70 years. So the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years was completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. 
So what happened, if you do the math, it would take, I'm not here to do all this stuff, the math kind of stuff, but I've studied the math, and it shows that there were eight, eight jubilee cycles plus a part of a ninth, and when you add all that up, there's a total of 70 years where they did not observe the land Sabbath or the year of jubilee Sabbath. So God's accounting is perfect. So if you don't pay your credit card bill, it keeps accruing, and eventually they're going to come and take your house. And this is what happened to them, is God came and took their house from them, and he's not with them. So, so now a temple is started. However, this new temple, the constant miracles that were occurring before are no longer occurring in this temple. Prophecy disappears initially in this new temple. The Ark of the Covenant's gone, and the Holy of Holies is there, but it stands empty. God is not with his people. So when Cyrus starts to build this temple, he lays the, the foundation initially. And just the laying of the foundation, right, Steve, just the, just the base part of it. We haven't built anything above it. We're just laying the ground floor. When they see this, a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen their former temple, so about how old must they have been? Probably at least 80 or older. They saw the older temple. They, when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, they wept aloud. So what they must be seeing is a foundation that was nowhere near the size of Solomon's temple, so they're crying and weeping. Uh, But others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts from joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. So I think it's interesting about this passage, which is going to eventually relate to Anna. I'm getting to Anna, okay? Maybe this is too much context, I don't know. No such thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) some of the people chose to be thankful and rejoice for at least we have something while others this isn't good enough for me this isn't isn't what i used to have see you choose what god gives you you're going to be thankful for that or this isn't enough remember some some sundays ago when jesus raised the bread and the fish and he gave thanks for that which was not enough and so we have some people giving thanks for that which doesn't appear to be enough and others complaining still about it i think they're called stiff-necked people aren't they (laughs) always complaining about this and that this isn't as big as as what we we're used to so we're crying about that and then about 420 years later herod completely rebuilds the temple so 420 years later which if you do the math there is 20 bc So that would be about 20 years before Jesus is going to be born. Back when Josh was in college, uh, we had Blue Steel, which a song has been written about. That was his car, Blue Steel. Now it's sort of blue and brown steel because it has some rust. But uh, we left that at the house. He didn't need that down at college. We weren't even sure it could make it down to college. So it stayed at the house underneath the tree out front, which was also the bird toilet so it would be covered and it would turn blue steel to white steel eventually and uh, one of the times when we knew he was getting ready to come home I would go out there and I'm out there washing the car off and my next door neighbor comes out and he sees me and he says so Josh coming home from college I'm like wow I didn't even know we had he knew we had a son much less our son's name I wonder how he figured out that Josh is coming home from college what was the father doing 
The Father was preparing for the Son to come. Notice that temple wasn't built the year before Jesus was born. We're going to get this 20 years before he's born so we can work out all the kinks because my Son is coming and there's going to be a temple fit for him. And so this is what we see God doing before Jesus shows up. So if we compare Solomon's temple to Herod's temple, this is the scale comparison. So somewhere in between there, a smaller temple was was built uh, by King Cyrus. And so we see this much grander temple. If Jesus is going to be here, it's got to be the real thing. In fact, probably blue steel would be replaced with uh, Audi A6 or something like that. Something really nice for him to drive around in. Sorry, Josh, but we didn't have that much money like Herod had. Okay. (laughs) So all that to get to this point. This temple, if I back up a slide, this temple, this is the temple that Jesus was brought to when he was eight days old by Mary. This is what he entered into. And so when Mary shows up at this temple, and here's the layout of it, just to quickly go over it, we have the Holy of Holies up there, and then the preparation area right outside there that only the high priest could go into. They tied a rope to his foot in case he was not pure enough and God struck him dead, they could still pull him out. Then you have the vestibule, and then we have the priest hall and the Israelites hall. And notice as far away from the Holy of Holies as we can get is the woman's hall. That's where they get to stay out. We have the supplies of oil, uh, the, the Nazarites, the wood, the lepers, and the women. That's where you all get to hang out. So in case you didn't already know this, on the hierarchy of Jewish thinking, women were down here as far away from everything as they can get. So Mary comes to the temple, and she enters into this center gate, gate the Nicanor gate, where there would be a line of people waiting to get in to do whatever ritual needed to be done by the priest. And the door was huge, 40 cubits high, richly adorned with thick layers of silver and gold. The gate was an awesome sight to behold. That's where Jesus is brought into. And when she comes out, there's two people right away who recognize who he is. One of them is Simeon. And you all heard about Simeon. In fact, the scholars talk a lot about Simeon. Michael Card wrote a song about Simeon, right? When you look at the literature and the study like I've been looking at, there's not a whole lot of research and talk about Anna. The man, yeah, we're going to study Simeon to death, but Anna, the woman, well, she was there too. (laughs) Almost like an afterthought for Anna. I think Anna is interesting to study because when Simeon sees Jesus, he recognizes who he is. And remember what he says, now that I've held him in my arms, my life can come to an end. Let your servant now depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. He's the light of the Gentiles and the comfort of Israel. So he was looking to be comforted. He's comforted and he leaves, I guess, to go die. Anna does something different. So let's read about Anna. Let's all read this together, okay? And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, having lived with her husband seven years from her maidenhood, and as a widow even for 84 years. She did not go out from the temple enclosure, but was worshiping night and day with fasting and prayer. And she too came up at that same hour, And she returned thanks to God and talked of Jesus to all who were looking for the redemption, deliverance of Jerusalem. So she was looking for something different than Simeon was looking for. She wasn't looking just to be comforted. She was looking for the redemption of Israel. So let's take a look at at, um, Anna. We happen to have a picture of her from back that time. (laughs) How old was she? 
Well, it seems like she was 84 years old. Most translations have her as 84 years old, but a direct translation shows something different. She would have been a maiden for about 14 years, plus or minus. That might shock you, but back then people were much harder and tougher, and Mary was probably about 14 years old as well. And then she was married for seven years, and then it says, then she was a widow for 84 years after that. She was actually about 105 years old. Now, I don't know what use people that old could possibly be, 105 years old. What good are those people? Although, I think we had an Anna for quite some time who sat right about there, and I think her name was Myrtle, maybe Anna in disguise. And many of you might have received a birthday card from her because that was her ministry to people. You see, you're never at a stage in life where you're useless. You always have something to offer to God, whatever it might be, even some little thing can be useful. And this is what Anna was doing. So if we think about this age of 105, and we go back to think about this temple being built and completed in 20 BC, if we do some math, and we do have an actual picture of the guys building the temple back then. Um, They had jeans way back then. They'd been around for a while. These were the stonewashed jeans. That's where that came from. It was completed about 20 BCE. So when it was completed, she would have been probably about 84 years old. So in other words, Anna may have seen the entire temple construction from start to finish. So I'm thinking from her life experience, she probably had this kind of thing, right? She's watching the temple rebuilt. And from her perspective and who she is as a woman, and I'm not trying to take anything away from her at all. I'm trying to add to her. She's thinking something's getting ready to go down something's getting ready to happen. We've been out without a temple for a long time. We got this sort of half-baked temple from Cyrus. But now Herod, for some strange reason, what a coincidence, he's completely rebuilding this temple. So she has this expectation to watch what's going on. And it says she did not go out from the temple enclosure, but was worshiping night and day with fasting and prayer. So just to point out here, this is the temple in here. This outside wall is the enclosure. And she never left that enclosure. She stayed there day and night, all day long, and praying and fasting, would go into the temple from time to time when it was the correct hour to do so. But otherwise, she never left those walls. I'm just wondering if from time to time, people who got to know her rather well would say, girl, do you ever ever leave here? Do you ever go downtown and get a nice steak or something? What would her response be? Why would I leave here? I'm with the Lord. I don't know why you guys aren't staying in here. Something's getting ready to go down. You need to hang out and see what's going to happen. So she never leaves. And so I'm wondering, how was she able to get, I mean, she stays inside that enclosure. I mean, how did she eat, sleep, all the human bodily stuff that you have to do? How was she getting along? Well, now we go back to Deuteronomy. And I'm, I'm thinking more about memorizing Deuteronomy. Because someone pointed out a while ago that each time Jesus was confronted uh, and, and tested by Satan, he used Deuteronomy as a way to, to combat this, this uh, situation. So we read in Deuteronomy how God feels about the widows. And he says, When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce the third year, which is the year of the tithing, and have given it to, and there's a long list of people you give it to, uh, and, and you know, the, the orphans and the poor and, and so on, that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you can say, 
before the Lord your God. I have brought the hallowed things, the tithe, out of my house, and moreover have given them to all these people and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed from any of your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. So this helps me understand how she can stay inside the closure because the, the, the temple's been rebuilt. There's a stir of returning to the Lord and people are beginning to look up the commandments probably all this time and they see Anna the widow and you see what they're probably naturally going to do is they're going to obey the commandments of God. You want to go into the temple and give an offering? Anna's out here as other widows are. You may want to take care of them first. That's how God feels about the widows. In fact, he's even feels stronger about it than that. We read in Exodus 22. He says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath shall burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Here's another negotiation going on. Another if then. If you harm or afflict the widows... Something's, is that, is it me? Something, oh, we'll just continue and maybe it'll stop eventually. Um, here's another if then. If you harm a widow or an orphan anyway, if that's what you do, then I will kill you. So go ahead and go for it. And he feels very strongly about the widows. You probably thought I was going to start with James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How many of you already knew that scripture? Right? This is nothing new, is it? This is going all the way back to the Old Testament. It's a way of James revisiting. By the way, lest you think otherwise, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. We still need to take care of these people. Now, however, in our day, that may not make any sense. My father passed away, my mother became a widow, but there was insurance policies, savings, all that. She, she's fine. When best dad passed away, her mother, the same thing. I'm not sure what we have to take care of them. And so I know the ladies are studying in your Bible study what is the difference between a real widow and one who's not really a widow. And so we get the definition of a widow is simply someone who can't take care of themselves. It's a broader definition. And really in that way, there's a fourth widow that I'm not going to directly talk about during these two, these two sermons. But the fourth widow is us. We really can't take care of ourselves without the Lord. And so as we, we look at what's going on today, just recently, October 7, 2013, some of you may be aware of this. In India, to this day, if your husband dies, you better hope you're on good terms with your kids and your in-laws because if you aren't, they can kick you out. And you have nothing. You get none of your husband's properties, nothing. And these two towns of Rindavan and Radhakund are home to about 15,000 widows, most of whom were driven from their homes by family members, and they become destitute of life of begging. This still goes on today. It's really nothing new. Back in Luke 20, remember when the, the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus was teaching, and they came and they started challenging him with all these questions. They were asking him to try to trip him up. And of course, in true rabbinic fashion, Jesus answered all their questions with questions. <laughs> That's how they taught. That's how they learned. And of course, they finally got to a point where they were completely tied up in knots. And they eventually said, you have done well in answering our questions. And of course, if you read it again, they, he answered none of their questions. <laughs> he kept asking them questions. They're like, well, if we say this, we're, we're messed up. If we say this, we're in bad shape. So they said, you've done a good job. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> 
And then, I don't know if they stayed around to listen to this, but then Jesus says to the people sitting there, he says, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be saluted and honored in places where people congregate. They love the front and best seats in the synagogues and places of distinction at feasts. And they walk away with and devour widows' houses. And they covered up with pretense making long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation, the heavier sentence, the severe punishment. So now we go back to Exodus 22. What's the greater punishment? Going to kill them with the sword and their wives, the wives become widows. And so he's really, you can see Jesus staying true to all of God's word. He's upset by how the widows are being addressed. We'll see this again next week in a slightly different way. As Justin mentioned last week, referring to the previous sermon, that the, the, the men on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, most of the people didn't. Upon his re- resurrection, the very people that had worked uh, alongside of him or traveled with him for years, at least three years, when he came back, they didn't recognize who he was. I think that's because they had lost hope. You know, it, it says the two uh, men walking down the road to Emmaus were downcast. When Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, she's crying so hard through her tears she doesn't even recognize who she's talking to. In fact, accuses him of taking the body somewhere when in fact she's talking to him. They didn't recognize him. And, and I pointed out to Justin as he shared last week after the sermon, I wonder how many times I, in my sense of losing hope or depression or sadness or self-centeredness, that Jesus has appeared to me and I didn't recognize him. What's interesting about Anna Anna had never seen Jesus, had she? But the moment she saw him, she knew instantly who he was. And there's a reason why. Okay. So as we take a look at Anna, you continue to, this is the fun about digging into God's word and you look at something else, you look at this. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. That's her father's first name. You know what Phanuel means? Face of God, I love studying God's word. Or as my new friend back here, Ken Terry, says, I eat it up. <laughs> I devour it. I met this guy at McDonald's, at uh, St. McDonald's in Arnold. And uh, <laughs> he's there most Sunday mornings. And uh, I saw him there a couple of Sundays ago. Was And he had a couple of Bibles and commentaries all laid out and, and this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, this guy, something wrong with this man right here. <laughs> I needed to meet him and talk to him. And this is a guy who has figured out the word of God. It's where it's all at. And it's what gives us life and meaning. And so I shared with him. He goes to, I think you've been to every church in this area by now, haven't you, Ken? He goes to all of them, a lot of them. And so I said, well, we got a little church back here. He couldn't believe there's a church he hadn't seen yet. Well, we're tucked away a little bit, right? <laughs> we got a little bit. Location, location, location. We haven't learned that one yet. So Anna is teaching us something, and each of the widows is going to teach us something, whether they knew it or not. So Anna teaches us to hope to live a life of expectation, to look forward to. Everything is going to be fine. What did the angel say to the shepherds in the fields? Peace on earth, I hope you make it. No, it was peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It's all good, and Anna understood that. She also teaches us to stay close to God. She never left the enclosure. Now, that doesn't mean we never leave this building or Arnold. You see, she never left the temple. But Jesus taught us something new, right? This body is the temple that he resides in. And so Anna teaches us to remember that, that God is always there with you in there in you. In fact, Jesus says, if you abide in me, I and my Father will 
abide in you. So stay close to God, always thinking about and reminded, and to worship continually, to know his names and to bring them to mind and to say them out loud, to continue to praise him. Also to fast. We don't talk a lot about fasting, do we? We don't talk a lot about tithing. (laughs) These are things that are a benefit to us. I read recently that the scientists have figured out that people who have cancer on chemotherapy, if they fast for three days, the result of the chemotherapy is compounded exponentially to their good. It's almost like God knows how these bodies work. Almost like that. To pray at all times without ceasing, always communicating with God. Even your thoughts. You don't have to bend down and hope, put your hands. You can just be walking along and just be communicating with God at all times. He'll always listen to you. And also to, to tell those who are looking for redemption, they're looking for a way out, like we were talking this morning, Ken. What I'm doing isn't working. Well, let me tell you about another way that could work because you've tried everything else and you failed at it. Try this. This is a better way. See, Anna was the first evangelist. I never thought about that until I was preparing. I'm like, oh my gosh. She is the very first evangelist. Not held out like that by all the scholars. But she has to be first because what's the first thing she did? She didn't do what Simeon did. And I'm not putting Simeon down. But she didn't go die. (laughs) She did what? She had work to do. (laughs) She didn't go to tell people about Jesus. She was the first to bring light into the world. And so as I think about Anna and the other widows, I think about one of my, one of my favorite songs, and the lyrics go something like this. Two doors down, one rocking chair is rocking. And she sits there all alone. Her husband is dead and gone. The best years of her life they spent together, he was always strong, but now she's on her own. And the telephone never rings. No one laughs. And no one sings. It's quiet there. Does anyone care? So light your world and let the love of God shine through. I'm not even going to try not to cry. I'm just going to let it happen. (laughs) Let the love of God shine through in the little things you do, like Anna did. Light your world and though your light may be reaching only two or three, light your world. A knocking at the door breaks the silence and she looks out to see a little boy from down the street. She cracks the door, surprised he came over, flowers in his hand like a little gentleman. He says, I picked these just for you. I hope you like the color blue. Can I stay a while? I'd like to see you smile. So light your world. And let the love of God shine through in the little things you do. Light your world. And though your light may be reaching only two, maybe three, that's okay. Light your world because it only takes a little time to show someone how much you care. It only takes a little time to answer someone's biggest prayer. So light your world. And let the love of God shine through in the little tiny things that you do. Because he's doing them through you. Light your world. And though your light may be reaching only two, or maybe only three, light your world. So as the music team comes forward, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of the widows in Scripture. We thank you for showing us that even those 
who seem defenseless and helpless have something to offer. Help us take from their lives what we can adopt into our own lives so that we can also become people who live with great hope and expectation, who are in constant admiration of you. Allow us to always be communicating with you. In prayer, teach us how to deny our bodies so that the Spirit may flourish and that the love that you've shed in our hearts may be shared with others. We thank you for this time and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.